Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. Now realize what I'm, uh, what I'm up against here this morning. Everybody's stomachs are full. It's a little warm in here. Okay, that's uh, it's not a good combination. Okay, but I'll, uh, I'll keep that in mind for you. Uh, Genesis 22. Uh, let's beginning, uh, begin reading in verse 1. Let's read down to verse 14. It says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt or test Abraham and said unto, unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. Verse 4, Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again unto you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac, it says in verse 7, spake unto Abraham his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came into the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And verse 11 says, The angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not yet withheld, uh, that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by, the, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And I want you to notice a few things here. Uh, notice, first of all, as, as we mentioned in verse 1, that word tempt is not tempting Abraham to do something wrong. He's, he's testing him. Abraham's faith needed testing. Also, from verses 2 and verse 5, we can see that Abraham was anticipating a resurrection. Uh, burnt offerings died. Yet he says both he and Isaac would return to the young men. And we'll spend a little more time later on in verse 8 where God provides a sacrifice that he requires. Verse 10, Abraham is about to plunge the knife into the chest of his son, but that's not really the picture we ought to get. He's not going to stab the heart of his son. This is part of the ceremony where, where they, they, they hold the knife up, and right afterwards he, he relatively painlessly 
lets the blood from Isaac's throat. It was not a torturous thing, these sacrifices. They did it quite humanely and relatively painlessly. We'll spend more time in verses 13 and 14 as well later. Those are just things I wanted to bring out to you, things you need to pay a, a little bit of attention to as, as we get into this. Now, if, if Isaac is a type or, or picture or metaphor of Christ, then the type shifts at the place where the ram becomes the substitute, becoming Christ. But then who does Isaac become? Or what if Isaac is not a type of Christ only, but what if Isaac is also a type of us, needing a substitute propitiation for our sins, needing a substitute sacrifice for our sins? Then the ram is always pictured as our Savior crucified before the foundation of the world. Whichever it is, we were promised a Savior, and God kept his promise. The promise of a Savior began, though, long, long before the earthly ministry of, 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 of Jesus Christ. God put into action the plan to save you from your sins before he created anything. It says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. God tells this to Satan in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. See, crucifixion is the only form of execution that specifically targets the heel. The feet weren't laid on top of each other in the front. They were set side by side on the side of the vertical post and the nail driven this way. There's a nerve in the heel that this type of, of, of execution targeted. So in Genesis 3.15, we begin seeing the first indications of the way our Savior would die for us. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, it says that God promised eternal life before the world began. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, it says that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. That God the Father has been planning this since eternity past. He has had an interest in your salvation before any speck of dust ever existed. And that brings us to kind of a quandary, all right? Because the promise of a Savior, then, presupposes the need for a Savior. You follow me? All right? So, so if, if the need for, for, for medicine, all right, that, that assumes that there's an illness. The need for a mechanic assumes engine trouble. See, God would not have done all that he did to Jesus, his own son, if there was any other way to provide you salvation. And since God provided a Savior, you need a Savior. Now, why is a Savior needed? Who needs a Savior? Well, let's, let's spend a little time answering these questions because they're, they're important. Why is a Savior needed? A Savior is needed because you 
and I are, are, are sinners, and you and I have violated the holy standards of a holy God. You might be a good person uh, to, to other people, okay, horizontally, right? But, but you're not going to stand before other people to give an account for your sin when you die. Other people are not going to judge you for your sin. You will stand before the holy Lord God whose law you have broken and whose statutes you have failed to follow. God takes this very, very serious. Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. Paul is writing the Galatians. He says, the scripture hath concluded all under sin. Psalm 711 states that God is uh, angry with the wicked every day. If you've been in church much, you know the Romans road, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single person is guilty before God for their sin. Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? Who can say that? I can't. You can't. Romans 5, 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, that's what we have Adam, that's what he did. Eve was deceived, Adam sinned. He, he took a bite of that fruit knowing full well exactly what he was doing. And because of what he did, sin was then passed from, from, from him to every other human being on the planet entirely. It says, death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. That's why you need a savior. You know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There we go. Awanas pays off, right? We often forget about John chapter 3, verse 18, where it says, He that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So you are condemned in your sins right out of the gate. You are born a sinner. You're guilty of that sin. Psalm 53 and verse 3 says, There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Now again, horizontally, you may be a pretty good person. People may like you. They may be able to trust you with their dog and, and, and their money and to house it for them. And, and, and you're a person of your word. When you say something, you follow through, even if it costs you something. That's great. But that does nothing for your standing before a holy God. Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says, uh, really it states that the very best we can do, all our our attempts at righteousness is as filthy rags and the nicest way to explain filthy rags is medical waste and that's really putting it very nicely the very best you could do to try to earn righteousness or right standing before a holy god on your own 
is nasty, pus-ridden bandages. Look what I can do, God. Who needs a savior? You do. I do. There is none righteous. No, not one, not even you. Now that second question we're asking is, is, is why, why do we need a savior? Because there's nothing you can do to, to remove your own sin. I mean, your, your sin has separated you from God. Sin is the problem, right? Hell's not the problem. Hell's just the penalty. The problem is the sin. That's what separates you from God. The fundamental defect of, of a man-made religion is that it does not provide a lamb to complete the sacrifice, right? Man's attempt to get to God, that's, that's our works, and, and it's all that we do, but there's no blood involved, there's no death involved. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be, be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So even if right now at this moment you began perfectly keeping every single one of God's laws, you still would not be justified in his sight because you can do nothing about the sins you committed before you started keeping the law. And the purpose of the law is not to justify you. The purpose of the law is not to get rid of your sin. It's to show you your sin. And it does that. God's law tells you that you're a wretched and vile sinner and, and that you don't meet God's standard of holiness. But while it can tell you that, and it does a really good job at telling you that, but it can't tell you how to remedy that. It can't tell you how to, how to get rid of the condemnation, which, which means you're, you're hopelessly lost. You cannot save yourself from your own sin you need a substitute you need a savior you need that grave to be empty you desperately need that grave to be empty the reason is this it's because your sin must be paid for and if you're going to pay for it it's going to take you an eternity in the lake of fire to do it. But God had another plan. In Ezekiel 18.4 says that the soul that sinneth it shall die. Romans 6.23 for the wages of sin is death. The price you pay for having committed sin against a holy God is death. And James 1.15 explains the whole process of how this works. It says, and, and, and when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Sin always causes death. Then Revelation 21, verse 8, kind of sums it up and, and, and doesn't leave any doubt as, as to where somebody stands that has never trusted Jesus as their Savior. It says, but the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and the sorcerers and idolaters and all liars 
shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. Now, if this were, were all there was, if this is where the story stopped, then we would all be hopelessly and helplessly doomed. But wait, there's more. In God's justice system, all right, no, no sin is excused, no sin is overlooked, no sin is written off. All sin requires death for payment. But in God's justice system, there is built in a hope. For even though every sin must be paid for to the very last bit, God's justice system allows for substitution. All the animal sacrifices were only a shadow of something to come that was going to be, that for us has been, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. God commanded these animal sacrifices to teach his people the principle of substitution so that in due time he would provide the perfect substitution, the perfect atonement for our sins. Now, at the end of our reading here, Abraham called this place Jehovah-Jireh. Uh, if we're going to translate that into regular English, it would be God will provide. You know, in, that Mount Moriah became a mountain of testimony so that every time somebody would pass by, it would be said in the Mount of the Lord, it has been seen and provided. So Jehovah-Jireh, God will provide. Well, what will God provide? Is he going to provide a new car? Is he going to provide you a spouse? Is he going to provide you a better job? Is he going to provide you a way out of the trouble you've gotten yourself into? No. What is God going to provide? He will provide a remedy for your sin. That's what he provides. He'll provide a sacrifice. He'll provide a substitute. He'll provide a lamb. And, and here is the hope built into all of this. If you can find someone qualified to, to die and pay for your sins that doesn't have their own sins to pay for, God will allow their death to substitute for yours. There just so happens to be somebody so qualified. He is so qualified that he can substitute for anyone, for everyone who trusts them, trusts him to save them. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it's right at the end of, end of 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For he, that being God, hath made him, that being Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. See, if Jesus had known sin, he'd be disqualified as our substitute, right? But God has made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the great exchange. That's the great substitution. Matthew Henry says that God accepted animals as, uh, he says, as a pledge of that expiation which should one day be made by that great sacrifice. See, God loved Abraham, God spared Isaac's life, but he showed an even greater love when Christ was on that cross. When we had incurred a debt 
that we could not pay ourselves. God didn't spare his own son. God provided that substitute for us. And see, there is the idea of substitution. This is the pivotal fact in the scheme of redemption, of us having our sins forgiven and, and, and a relationship established with the Father through Jesus Christ. Look in Genesis 22, look at verses 8 and verse 11 again. Okay, just, just kind of skim over it a little bit. You know, Abraham said, my father, um, I'm sorry, my son God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Look up uh, there in verse 11. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. The grammar here is awesome. It says three things between these two verses all at the same time. First of all, it says that God will provide as in he will do the providing. So God's going to do the providing. The second thing is that there is a future aspect of this, meaning that God won't just provide a, a, a sacrifice there, but there's one coming in the future. It's, an, it's a Hebrew imperfect, and I'm not real good at Hebrew, uh, but, but it, it means that, that, that yeah, it's, it's, it's coming. It's on the way. Now, now, we look back to it because it's already happened, but Abraham got to look forward. Something else is coming, all right? At some point in the future, there would be Christ. And the third thing is that God himself will provide himself as the sacrifice. See, our, our salvation is all of God and none of us. God does everything to provide us a substitute. God provided the ram for the burnt offering. God alone can supply that which will satisfy his holy demands. Nothing on the part of you and me can meet these divine requirements of a righteous God God did what sinful man could never do. He did what you and I could never do. God supplied the perfect lamb for the substitutionary atoning sacrifice for sin. He provided Christ for you because there's nothing you could do to take care of your sin. The claims of God's holiness and justice were perfectly met in this substitutionary atoning death of Christ so that as it says in Romans chapter 3 verse 26 that God might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus because God will not wink at sin sin must be punished to the nth degree no sin is winked at or written off or bypassed which means that Jesus took it all the full brunt of the white hot wrath and hatred that God has for sin that's the just part sin must be punished that is justice and in doing that he's able to justify us by our faith in Jesus uh, we we get Jesus's righteousness in exchange Jesus gets our sin so it's 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 just as if I had never sinned that's what justified is the only sacrifice that God accepts for our sin is the sacrifice that he himself provided for our sin. 
That's, that's what has taken place. Now I'm going to show you just part of a video. And then we're going to finish the message. From the History Channel special on the life of Christ. It deals with not Jesus' resurrection, but Lazarus's resurrection. It's about three minutes or so long. Uh, then right afterwards, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish this up. Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the New Testament, but speaks to the long tradition of human suffering. Jesus experiences the pain, the tragedy, and the grief of a loving and caring Savior. Where have you laid him? Come and see, my Lord. that as Jesus approaches Lazarus's tomb, Mary and Martha are simply expecting him to join the mourners. Take away the stone. What does Martha say? Lord, let's not open the tomb. There will be a bad smell. She's not expecting resurrection on the spot, even when they go to the tomb. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? What was going through the mind of Mary and Martha when they saw their brother raised from the dead? They were probably stupefied beyond words. This is one reason Jesus has to say to the crowd, untie him and let him go. They probably were so shocked they couldn't even move. Jesus resurrected Lazarus. He was essentially overturning what God ordained. Which says that maybe his claims that he's the son of God are believable. And that made him an enormous threat to the religious establishment. Why look at Lazarus on 
Easter. What does this have to do with the resurrection except that Lazarus experienced one, right? Unsaved, having not trusted Jesus as Savior, we are Lazarus. Lazarus is us. Dead in trespasses and sins, unable to do anything to change our situation that so desperately needs to be changed. What Jesus did for Lazarus physically, he will do for all of us spiritually if we come to him to be saved, if we trust him as our savior, we are, we are as dead spiritually as Lazarus was physically, and in that spiritual death, we stink. We're condemned. We need forgiveness. We need life. We need resurrection. Jesus is the resurrection. He is the life. How do we know this? Two ways the Bible says so. The second way is that he himself resurrected himself, forever conquering death. That's how we know we can trust him to give us life. That's how we know that he is empowered to give us life, because he beat death himself for us. Because Jesus lives, we too will live if and only if he has saved us. B.B. Warfield says that the glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not the, not the humanized God, not a, not a deified man, but the true God-man. That as a man, he could die, and as God, he could beat death. See, everything that needs to be done has been done. The price has been paid. That's why Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. The substitute has stepped into your place. And then he resurrected, proving every claim that he made to be the one who could save you from your sins. All that had to be done to stop Christianity in its tracks was to provide a body. You realize that? That's all it took. Can't produce what ain't there. If you're skeptical about this, I want you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I dare you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and then tell me how Christianity can't be true. See, long after Genesis 22, or long after Isaac, another son of promise came to this mountain 2,000 years later, uh, but there was no substitute lamb for him because he was the lamb. He, he, he is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. This day in Genesis 22, the lamb became Isaac's substitute. God rescued Isaac with this substitute ram, and, and, and our substitute uh, saved us from the penalty, from the wages of our sin. And the Apostle Paul wrote, Again, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, I've got to read it to you again. That, that he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's our substitute. That is, and, and, and this is the way Peter understood it. 2 Peter 2.24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, we might, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his stripes we are healed. F.B. Meyer said again, There is only one scene in history by which it, and this is the scene with Abraham and Isaac on this mountain where Abraham thinks that his son is going to die. There's only one scene that, that is surpassed. That is where the great father gave his Isaac, which is Jesus, to death from which there was no deliverance. But what now? Are we automatically saved because of this? Is this what Easter means? Is this, you know, what an empty grave means that we're all just automatically kind of in? No. You must, in faith, repent of your sin. That's turn from your sin. You trust Jesus to save you. Right? That's, that's the key. Yes, he's your substitute, but you have to trust him to save you. You're hopelessly lost and condemned if you don't. You're destined to spend an eternity in the lake of fire, and that is your just punishment. That's what you deserve, the best you deserve. But God's offering you a substitute. God's offering you a way out of paying the own penalty for your sin. Let me read you what one commentary says uh, in relation to Genesis 22, and we can apply it to uh, the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection of Jesus himself. He says, here is the fire of God's unappeased justice, and here is the wood. Your unholy meat and life, but where is the lamb? God demands worship. A sacrifice he will have. But with those two factors, justice and sin, no acceptable offering can be made. Bring the Lamb of God to the altar of worship or expect yourself to be slaughtered on that altar, a victim of his offended justice and broken law. There's only two options. You trust Jesus to save you. You accept his righteousness, his payment. You repent of your sins. You turn to him or you spend an eternity in the lake of fire and you miss all the benefits and the blessings of the substitute that was available for you. That is the only two options there are. But if you do, if you do come to Christ, if you do trust him to save you, then your sins are going to be forgiven. They're going to be wiped off the books. You're going to be free, free from all of God's condemnation. You'll be adopted as one of God's children, and you'll live forever with your new father in heaven for all eternity. You'll be as accepted by God as Jesus is accepted by God. Jesus himself provided himself to make that possible for anyone, for anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. You know, Spurgeon said, referring to somebody who has trusted Jesus for their salvation, he says this, you stand before God as if you were Christ. Because Christ stood before God as if he were you. That is 
That is substitution. That is the grace that is offered to us through Jesus Christ. So now you've got a choice. Now you've got to make a decision. Will you trust Jesus to save you? Will you repent, turn from your sins, and turn to Christ? Please, don't leave here this morning unsure of your eternal destiny. Don't leave here wondering if you're going to make it or not. When God says you can know, don't leave unsure. We're going to do things a little differently this morning. The pianist is going to come. She's going to play through a verse or two of number 131, which is our closing hymn. As she gets ready, I want you to stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. It's going to be a personal time between you and the Lord. Your head's bowed, your eyes are closed, your piano is going to play softly. And I want to give you an opportunity to make a decision. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord as he is dealing with you. Uh, if, 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 he is, if, if he is convicting you of your sin, if you know you need to trust Jesus to save you, if you're not sure if you're saved or not, I want you to come forward. Somebody here will take you and pray with you. If you are not sure of the condition of your undying soul, then please... Take this time. Meet me up here. Let somebody else meet you up here to introduce you to Jesus, your substitute. If the Lord has spoken to you now, please come forward and pray with us. Please come. stood before God right now you would hear well done thou good and faithful servant or would you hear depart from me I never knew you please don't let another moment go by not knowing where you're going to spend eternity when the substitute has been provided he's, he's risen himself from the, from the grave he's proven that he can give you life and forgiveness and acceptance let another moment go by. Father, this time we want to thank you for this look into your word, the reminder of the life we have through Christ. We thank you, Father, for your love, the grace that you displayed as Jesus was brutally crucified, laid in a hole in the ground, and three days later he beat death exactly like he said he would thank you for the confidence that we have through Christ to approach you and your throne of grace but father I pray for anyone here this morning that is unsure that doesn't know Jesus as their savior lord that you would convict them of their sin that you would draw them and that you would work in them until Christ be formed in them I pray father you would draw them to your glory it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mike, would you come ahead and lead us in a closing hymn?